we present an overview of 2000 years of Christian history and gain key insights on reformation paving the way for revival which then results in the restoration of the church and increase in missions and church growth all right we're going to get ready to make our declaration this morning i have a question what do you say the the first the first thing you say when you wake up put your feet on the floor and what do you say oh man another day <laughs> what do you say thank you jesus yeah the bible says this is the day that the lord has made i will be sad <laughs> and be totally mad you know no what does it say this is the day that the lord has made i will rejoice and be glad in it. so that's a declaration so that's a declaration you and i can make every morning you wake up doesn't matter whether it's the monday morning blues like tomorrow morning or whatever it is some tuesday wednesday doesn't matter what day of the week it is we all say the same thing this is the day that the lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it you know, to set yourself up or the bible says blessed be the lord who daily loads me with troubles No 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 that's not what it says it says blessed be the lord who daily loads me with his benefits amen so what do you say wow this morning god i don't know what benefits you're going to dump on me you're going to put upon me so blessed be god who daily puts his benefits on my life his blessings on my life right or how about saying great is your faithfulness your mercies are your mercies are new every morning amen so why don't we just do that every morning when you wake up doesn't matter how you feel doesn't matter what's lined up for you that day maybe you've got you know this big meeting with your boss and uh, you've got a report on certain things or whatever it might be uh doesn't matter what the pressure is doesn't matter what the challenge uh, is up ahead of you you say the same thing this is the day the lord has made i will rejoice i will be glad in it blessed be my god he loads me with his benefits his mercies are new every morning great is his faithfulness let's learn to declare that day after day every morning just as you wake up so this morning we train ourselves to make this declaration which basically is a summary of many things that god has put in his word we want to we want to stay true to his word even as we uh, keep making our declaration so let's rise to our feet this morning as we do this we say this intentionally we want to align our words with what god has said so if you have your bible lift it high up in the air say this out loud bold and strong with me this is god's word this is god speaking to me I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I'm saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I'm blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of his blessing to many people. I receive his word. I believe his word and I live by his word. Christ is my master. And to him I am an absolute surrender in Jesus name. Amen. Turn around to the person next to you and just say hi, hello, give them your name. And uh this morning sermon is called a brief history of time. Okay, that was supposed to be a joke. Don't be laughing. <laughs> okay. We've been talking about revivals and uh, this morning what we're going to do is um, tra- travel back in time 2000 years and we're going to traverse 2000 years of church history in the next 40 minutes. You okay? Now, I don't know how many of you like history but I like history. Church history especially. I just like to read stories of what God has done in the past and and just review those things. Now, uh 
we all of this entire series is uh, i'm working on a book so it's all going it's all going to be out in print this entire series on revivals visitations and moves of god where you'll have stories given to you at length uh, and even this timeline will be in much greater de- detail than what we're going to talk this morning because obviously we can't cover every event uh, and every key person and every key thing that happened in the history of the church but it's important for us to know the history of the church so that we understand why we are where we are today what happened in the past to bring us to where we are today and to correctly interpret understand and interpret the present it's important to know history we can get into problems if we interpret the present in isolation you need to know the past what brought us here what caused these things to come together why are we here the other reason why it's important to look at history is because it gives us an idea of god's patterns of working god what has he done in the past what are the kinds of things he has he done in the past what has he put into the life of the church that we must never lose we must understand these things just to give a scriptural backing or some point of reference scripturally before we begin this journey couple of verses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9 God tells Moses and he tells his people take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life teach them to your children and your grandchildren don't forget what God has done in your past and it's good for us as individuals also you know just to look back and say god i remember i was there in the pit several times and god you brought me out and here i find myself in it again and i know you will bring me right it's good to look back see what god has done remember it in- inspires faith it inspires confidence in god it also teaches you know how god would su- would work you're anticipating a certain way of god working because you know he's done it in the past So God is telling Moses make sure you tell your people don't forget what God has done. In Joshua chapter 4 uh, you find the people of Israel they're crossing over the river Jordan they're getting into the land of Canaan but God tells them to do something. He says as you cross over this Jordan once everyone has gone across get the priests each one from each of the tribe take 12 big stones and make a pile on the bank of the river Jordan on the other side. And he says in verse 6 that this may be a sign among you and your children when they ask in time to come what do these stones mean to you what do these stones mean what are these memorials what are these landmarks what does it mean and then he says you will tell them about the waters of jordan how before the very ark of the covenant before the very presence of god the waters parted and that you crossed over the jordan so in another words this is a memorial of a wonderful deed an act that god has done in your life don't forget it amen it's important for us to raise up our personal memorials now it may not be piles of stones or other things but it's at least in your journal now you know why you should buy the journal right <laughs> i like to journal I I like to write down sometimes I journal you know I met with so and so and had a great meeting it was wonderful and I look back and I say wow I remember what happened in that meeting it was so wonderful you know it's it's always good so whether it's a journal or something else some other way that you would write, like to raise up a memorial in your life so that you can look back you know when I was a 13 year old and I was studying the bible I used to write a lot those days we didn't have these computers so all my you know whatever i was learning the bible i write and i still have those diaries with me age of 13 i can go back and open and say wow look this is what i was learning as i was reading the word of god i can go back in time and i say god thank you for what you did and those is i used to visualize a lot of things and i used to draw those di- pictures me myself preaching to thousands of people i draw i have still have those diagrams there as to visualize imagine this is what i should dream as a 13 14 year old and I write them down or you know draw those little thing diagrams um drawings there are sketches there today i can go back to those diaries i even have the diary in which i wrote the 10 things i want in my wife i have the date and i have the list <laughs> i can still go back in fact i think it was last day he said open it up and show me what you know 
it's fun just to be able to go back and look at those those memorials those milestones in your life hey that, that day may 22nd 1993 i sat down and i wrote these things down you know it's nice to turn your journal look at what god has done what how he has answered prayer and so on another verse there in psalm 44 verses 1 to 4 the psalmist says we have heard with our ears oh god our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days in days of old so the fathers they they're telling us stories of what you did in their days in days of old they're telling us the stories and he says you know you drove up nations with your hand but you but them you planted you afflicted peoples and cast them out they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword nor did their own arms save them but it was your right hand your arm and the light of your countenance because you favored them so what is this story telling people god they had nothing but yet you helped them conquer cities and armies and nations much greater than them those are the kinds of stories they are telling us and so today this is what we can pray verse 4 you are my king o god command victories for jacob you see how those old stories inspire faith for today because you gave them victories in the past over enemies bigger than them over cities greater than them so today we can pray say god give command victories for us amen so it's good for us to remember recount look back at what god has done so what we're going to do in the next uh uh 30 40 minutes we have together is journey through the history of the church and look at key events key people key things that happened and uh, some of these i'll just make mention because we won't have time to elaborate on it and there were some there'll be a few things that might that i might elaborate and then as we come a draw into the 21st century we're going to try to elicit some lessons that we can learn from the history of the church what do we see as key patterns and i'm just going to highlight those lessons uh, which we will take with us this morning so around 80 30 now you don't have to write any of these dates down when you get the book everything will be there and uh, you can do it now when we were doing this conference in mysore this particular session came right after lunch now that's the toughest session and imagine doing a history class <laughs> right after lunch but i want to tell you something not one person slept not one they were wowed by the history what god has done and i hope you will be too this morning 8030 or around that time jesus is crucified and 8030 right after that is a day of pentecost when we have the outpouring of the holy spirit and the church is born 8052 not all, so 8030 we, we we talked about the first 40 years of the church how the church expanded grew into asia minor and on into europe 8052 amazing thing one of God, christ's own apostles thomas lands up in the southern part of india bringing the gospel to us around 8066 68 peter and paul are martyred for the faith they killed uh, most likely by emperor ne- uh, by nero AD 70 Jerusalem is destroyed the way Jesus said uh, had prophesied and said not one stone will be left here everything was destroyed in AD 90 we have an important council of Jamnia where uh, certain Jews came together and they canonized the old testament scripture meaning they said these are all the books that comprise the old testament this is it they accepting it as god's word to us they canonized it that's important for us by 95 Uh, the book of revelation was written and shortly thereafter uh, 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 through 96 onwards there was a growing recognition of all the new testament writings people began to recognize these epistles these writings by the apostles uh, 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 comprised the word of god to us so they're recognizing it at that time 98 the apostle Paul, uh, john dies the last apostle of jesus christ uh, by 99 all the new testament writings are completed and very interesting by 100 800 christians are now uh, 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 established as far as sri lanka uh, over into the uh, uh, part of france and uh, even uh, uh, in uh, in algeria as well second century what do we see in the second century one of the key things that we find in the second century is that a number of heresies begin to emerge meaning 
wrong ideas, wrong teachings, we threaten the very doctrine of the church. There is the heresy of Gnosticism which claims superior knowledge and that you can know God only through some form of a, a superior knowledge. There is a, uh, there are, there, there is a heresy of, uh, let me see, uh, uh, Marconism which is an attempt to reduce scripture. Uh, it, it, it was an attempt to reduce even the scriptures uh, to um, a few selected books. And there was even a, a, a heretical movement called Montanism which was a, extreme form of, of the charismatic move that we know of today. So what we see in the, in the church during that second period, the second century, is the rising of key apologists who defended the core doctrines of the faith. Some of them, um, important names are, man, are men like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. Here's what you see in the second century. You read about a man named Aristides in 8125. He writes the first apology for the church to defend the faith. And he presents it to the Roman emperor. Uh, in 8155, Justin Martin, another apologist, he writes his first apology and initiates uh, the rising of many apologists who would stand up for uh, certain truths that were being challenged. Things like the deity of Christ, the, the sacredness of scripture, uh, and, and, and so on. Polycarp in 8155 is a, is a direct disciple of the Apostle John, he is martyred there in, uh, in AD 155, but he, before his death, trains another church historian and apologist, Irenaeus. Very important, because Irenaeus was trained directly by John, the Apostle. And he, in 183 to 186, he writes a, another, his own work against heresies, uh, and he defends the Christian faith. And that's a very, uh, his work is very important uh, both doctrinally and historically. He, uh, he preserves the truth uh, concerning the deity of Christ and he also pre uh, preserves history as given to him through the Apostle John. So that's the second century. The third century, uh, a very important thing that we see in the third century is the rise of what we know as monasticism. Certain men, they were uh, aggravated, upset by the worldliness they saw uh, beginning to creep into the church. And so they moved into a life of seclusion where they would devote themselves entirely to prayer, study of the word, and the preservation of scripture. And so other people joined with them, and so monasteries were created. Uh, these men were often called as the early church fathers or the desert fathers. Now they are very important because they helped continue certain things. They help continue the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So the work, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit did not cease with the apostles. Many of these monks in their monasteries experienced mighty miracles, healings, deliverances. In fact, people used to search them, search them out coming into the deserts to have them pray for healings and deliverances. So this discounts the theory, uh, this, this, this certain theology called cessationalism, which says that the Workings of miracles cease with the last apostle. You have the records of these monks, even in the third century, performing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. They were also important because they preserved scripture for us. They preserved the doctrine of the church. So this began, this, this whole movement of monasticism began in the third century um, uh, uh, AD. And it continue, con continued on even through the dark ages, which we will talk about. One of the, uh, the leaders or the pioneers uh, in this whole movement was a man named Anthony the Great uh, from Egypt. He's the first one who went away into the desert uh, just to leave, uh, lead a life in seclusion. And, and so it was important. About the end of the third century, northern Africa becomes a highly Christianized area. Egypt uh, reports as many as one million Christians by the end of the third century. Unlike what we see today. But that's important for us to know. So we move into the 4th century, which again is very important in the life of the church. Are you all with me? Alright, you're still on the same flight? Alright, at the beginning of the 3rd century, sorry, the 4th century, um, the Roman emperor, uh, he makes a massive attempt to wipe out the church. He wants to kill every Christian. And unfortunately, that effort fails. But subsequent to him in AD 312 comes an emperor or a leader named Constantine. And everything changes at that point. Because in AD 312, Constantine has an, a vision of the cross. 
and he becomes very favorable to the cross. So when he, once he becomes the emperor of Rome, he hands out lots of favors to the church. He gives them lots of land. He enables them to build these huge basilicas and huge buildings. And, and so from then on, it's a convenient thing to become a Christian, not something that you do because of a hard conversion. So you have a mass movement of people all across Rome into the church, bringing with them all their pagan practices, but not having genuine conversion of the heart. This was the result of Constantine's favor towards the church. And so we see this happening starting from uh, about 313 AD. Around that time in 318 AD, there is a man um, uh, who belonged to a church in Alexandria. It was not called All People's Church. Uh, his name was Arius. And he came up with this wrong teaching, wrong idea uh, that brought, gave a different explanation to the deity of Christ. And, and he came up with his wrong theories. And he was, uh, and, 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 and he, he, of course, was excommunicated by the church. But it, it gave rise to what was known as the Arian controversy, uh, uh, another heresy that was questioning the deity of Christ. So what Emperor Constantine did in, in AD 325 is that he called the first council of the church post the early church period. You remember in the early church, they had the council in Jerusalem that was presided by James the apostle uh, in, in Acts chapter 15. So this was the first major council after that, which was called in by Emperor Constantine in AD 325 in Nicaea. So he brought together the bishops, the leaders, and they discussed this whole how do we defend the church against this Aryan controversy? And as a result, they came out with the Nicene Creed. Many of us are familiar with that, right? Yes, or some form of it, right? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so they came up with it in order to preserve the doctrine of the church. So this was a very positive thing that happened at that time. Around 8367, the New Testament is canonized. The canon of Scripture was closed, which means now you recognize you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament set of Scriptures. Around that time, uh, a man named Jerome, it's not on your screen, I think, a man named Jerome uh, was uh, commissioned by the Catholic Church to translate the whole Bible in Latin. And, and so we have the Latin Vulgate Bible produced in 8384, uh, which remained uh, a standard for a long period of time. So these are key things that happened uh, in that uh, uh, 4th century. There were other things that you'll have in the book. But now when you come into the Middle Ages, something happens. Because the emperor was so favorable and, 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 and the empire, the Roman Empire, got so involved in the church, the emperor now was dictating things that took place in the church. And as a result of it, the church took on a new shape and form. The church became institutionalized. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the pure word of God was replaced with liturgy, rituals, and in fact, the knowledge of the word of God so diminished that even the priests didn't bother reading the scriptures. Forget the lay people. They had no access to it. They believed that the lay people should not read. It is, they just have to follow what is said by the priest. And the priest was just following what was said by the, pope, by the emperor through the pope. And so it was, it was a dark period. The, spiritual and more, the, the church went into a steep moral and spiritual decline. Soon all kinds of wrong practices began to be introduced into the church. Um, things like uh, prayers to the saints, worship of relics, um, uh, transubstitution, imagining that the, the, the bread and the wine actually becomes uh, the real uh, uh, flesh and blood of Jesus, and a belief in purgatory, belief in the supremacy of the church and the infallibility of the church, and belief in the supremacy of the Pope, and, and also believing in, in uh, uh, also a thing called indulgences where uh, you can pay money to legally sin, right? So all these things were introduced into the church. So morally and spiritually, the church was bankrupt. So if you lived in that time called the Dark Ages, which went on for about a thousand years, if you went to somebody, say a person who was in, in this big cathedral or big church building, and you told them, do you know there's coming a time when every believer will be able to worship God in spirit and truth 
That will be totally foreign to them. What are you talking about? It's only form and liturgy. If you spoke to somebody and said, do you know there's coming a time when every believer will have a Bible in their own hands? Or at least on their iPad or their phone. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? No way. No. But look what God has done. Look where the church is today. Out from those, that darkness, spiritual darkness that crippled the church. God has raised up and is raising up a mighty army all over the world. I tell you, there's nothing impossible with God. What an amazing journey the church has made. But how did all this happen? What was happening as part, during those dark ages? Some positive things were happening. Uh, we see in 85, 96 that uh, Gregory the Great, he sends a team of missionaries to England to bring the gospel there. Um, uh, in 86, 35, there are missionaries that go into Asia Minor, Persia, and China. So people are still moving out. But remember, things are spiritually dark inside the church. So this goes on for about a thousand years. And then you begin to see signs of reformation. You begin to see stirrings taking place in the church. We call these people the early reformers. One of the foremost men that we need to be aware of was um, Peter Waldo in 1150. Peter Waldo was a businessman in Lyons, France. And he happened to read the New Testament. He started reading in Matthew. He was reading the teachings of Jesus. And he said, you know, these are not the things being practiced in the church today. And so he decided, a businessman decided that he was going to follow what was in the New Testament. And he stepped out. He started preaching what he was reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, people started following him. They started practicing healing, this, uh, healing and, 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 and uh, doing whatever they read in Matthew chapter 10. Now, they, and they rejected many of the teachings of the institutionalized church of that day. And, uh, and, and that, be, that was the starting point of reformation that we see. In, uh, in 1266, the Mongol leader Khan, he, uh, he, he, uh, he asks for uh, um, Marco Polo's father and uncle. He asks for the Pope to send Christians into Mongolia, but uh, he asks for 100 missionaries. He says, please send 100 missionaries to Mongolia. But only two left and only one reached. He missed a great opportunity at that time. In 1382, we read about John Wickler. He's known as the Reformation Morning Star. John Wycliffe was an Oxford-educated scholar. He had a doctorate in theology. And this was 200 years before uh, the Reformation. He believed and that he declared that, the, that every Christian had a right to know the Bible. And, and he emphasized that every Christian must see, uh, have, look at Christ alone to experience salvation without much of the practices of the church. And so John Wycliffe set out to translate the Bible, the entire Bible, into English. He translated it from uh, the Latin Vulgate, from the work of Jerome. But that was his work, which was a, a very important work to get the whole Bible in English. He did that in 1384 and he, uh, 1382, and he died two years later. In 1415, we read about another man named John Huss, uh, who was born in, 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 a, in a place in Czechoslovakia. And he was a professor at the University of Prague and the chaplain at the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. So he held two key positions. He was uh, trained uh, in theology and, and he held two key positions. Now, John Huss, having these very important positions, began to preach the scripture. He began to you know, he was influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe and he began to preach about the word of God. He challenged the things, the corruption and the abuses that were uh, in, the, in the church at that time. He also believed that each person should have his own Bible in a language that they can read and so on. And he preached about the justification by faith and, uh, uh, and about a hundred years even before uh, Martin Luther. But promptly, John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415. Today, what we take for granted of being saved by grace used to cost people their lives just for preaching it. In 1455, we read about uh, we, this man named Johannes Gutenberg. He invents the printing press, which was a great uh, 
blessing because they now printed many copies uh, of the uh, Latin Bible and uh, you know Bibles began you know multiple copies of the Bible were easily available. So when we move on into the 1500s, we begin to see more of this Reformation taking shape. In 1516, we read about a man named Erasmus. He was a Dutch scholar, a monk, and turned writer. And it is often said that Erasmus loaded the cannon that Martin Luther fired. Now, Erasmus was, uh, uh, again, he, he was a scholar, and uh, he attempted to bring change by two things. One, he, he wrote a satire, a, 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 a writing that, that in a humorous way exposed all the folly that was in the church. And he also made a new translation, the Greek New Testament, um, into Greek and into Latin side by side. And then he had his notes all around that emphasized the teaching of scripture and exposed the errors in the church, in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the church of that day. And he handed it to the Pope for the Pope to bless and release it to everybody. He was a good strategist. But his, his intent was, let's bring change. And he, that was his work. Right after that, in 1517, we hear about Martin Luther. On October 31st, he goes up, uh, 1517, he goes up to the church in Wittenberg. And he nails his 95 thesis on the door of that church and that changed the course of Christian history because when he stood up and he identified 95 errors in the church it divided the church those who would dare to step out and believe the teaching of the scripture it was a challenge but that was historical and that's why many, many times when we talk about Reformation, we talk about Martin Luther. But we must keep in mind there were several people prior who also began to preach and teach uh, important things. Right after Martin Luther, many reformers began to rise. Ulrich Zwingli in 1519 in Switzerland was very important. And he began to preach the same uh, teaching of scripture that there is justification by faith in Christ. We must read the scripture, follow the scripture, not the practices of the institutionalized church. A very important move at that time in 1525 were the, an offshoot of Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland was a group called the Anabaptists. They went a step further and they rejected the water or infant water baptism and they said you need to be baptized as a believer properly the way the Bible says. Now they suffered for that. They were promptly ex excommunicated uh, and, uh, but they stayed with that preaching and teaching. Not only of justification by faith in Christ, uh, the belief in the scripture, but also you need to be baptized the way the New Testament says. They also believed not only in the priesthood of all believers, but in the ministry of all believers. They believed in the work of the Holy Spirit, just like we do. So they are, the Anabaptists are the closest to the, new, the modern day charismatic movement that we can get. And this goes back, way back into 1525. A great move uh, that took place at that time. Around the same time, 1525, William Tyndale, a, a, a very important person because he translated the entire Bible from the original text, from the Hebrew and the Greek, translated uh, uh, the entire English Bible. He was a scholar who studied both at Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, he spoke seven languages. He was proficient in Hebrew and the Greek. And his, his aim in life was to give the English people a translation of the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek, which they could read. Here's what he's, he's, he's quoted to saying, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life or many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. That was his passion. He wanted to get the book, the word of God, into every person's hand. And so um, he succeeded in doing that by 1534. The entire Bible was translated from the original Hebrew and Greek. And, uh, it, uh, uh, but it was rejected. It brought a lot of uh, unrest within the church. And uh, William Tyndale was imprisoned, strangled. He was burned at the stake in 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, when you and I read the Bible, the English Bible, 
Remember the people who were burned alive just to bring it in the language you and I can read and take it lightly. John Knox, uh, we see other reformers, John Calvin and so on in 1536. In 1556, we see John Knox who brought great reformation in Scotland. And uh, uh, he prayed this powerful prayer, Lord, give me Scotland or else I die. I think that inspires all of us. The pastors in Mysore, when they saw this, they, somebody took a photo and sent it on the WhatsApp group to everybody. Saying, this is how we must pray for Mysore. Lord, give me Mysore or else I I think that's how we must pray for Bangalore. Lord, give me Bangalore, give me India, or else I. Now, John Knox was such a powerful man of prayer. The Queen of Scotland once said, I do not fear all the armies of Europe as much as I fear the prayers of John Knox. And within one generation during John Knox's time, 90% of Scotland became Christian. One man who prayed, God give me Scotland or else I challenge for us. 1611, we have the uh, authorized King James Version of the Bible released in 1604, seven years prior to that, King James I got together 54 men who were skilled in Hebrew and Greek and he wanted them to translate it. They worked in six different groups and they, uh, in 1611, they released the first copies of the new version that went through several revisions. And what we have today as the authorized King James Version of the Bible, some of us may be using that, is the 1762 uh, revision of that. But that's also important. So what we see here is from the dark, from all of the wrong things that are going on in the church, reformation began to take place. But what did this reformation result in? As we see truth being restored, as we see the church being aligned to what it's supposed to be, the next thing we see happen is revival breaking out. In 1726 through 1750, that period in the history of the church is amazing. It's the time of the first great awakening in North America. Revival swept across North America. But not only that, during that same time, revival took place across England and in Germany. You heard some of these stories uh, in the first great awakening. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, some names that you will re remember, were the revivalists used in turning thousands to Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he is known for his, that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. George Whitfield, uh, in his preaching, signs and wonders accompanied uh, his preaching. And he is, uh, he is known to have preached 3,000 sermons from that same scripted text, John chapter 3, verse 3. That encourages us preachers. We can preach the same sermon. But so revival spread across North America. Over in England, God raised up John Wesley. Around the same time, revival broke out in England. And, and God was using John and Charles Wesley, which gave rise to the uh, so the Methodist, the Methodist movement, uh, John Wesley is said to have preached 50,000 sermons and traveled 250,000 miles on horseback. That's sacrifice. And over in Germany, we heard about the Moravian revival, the story that we looked at in detail a couple of Sundays ago. All this was happening about the same time. In 1741, we read about the Cumberland revival in Scotland, which took place in, in, a, in, a, in a city near uh, in a place close to Glasgow, revival was happening there. And as a result of revival, what we see right after that is a rise of many missionaries. People going out. And some of these names you will, you will identify. In 1742, we read about David Brainard who went as a missionary to the North American Indians. One of the greatest, powerful, most powerful men of prayer. He lived a very short life. He died, I think, about 27 but in that short span that he served, he saw revival break out among the Native American uh, Indians. 1761 onwards, we read about William Carey who comes to India. He's known as the father of the modern missionary movement, had a great impact on our nation. We read about Henry Martin in Persia, Robert Morrison, a missionary China, Adon Adoniram and Judson, Burman, India, and Dr. John Scudder uh, coming as a missionary to India. So what do we see? Reformation, revival, missions. Are you seeing that? 
reformation, coming back into alignment to the truth, gives revival, leads into missions. And this happened in that time. And when you come into the 19th century, you see this all over again. At the beginning of the 19th century, we have the second great awakening, another great move of, of the Holy Spirit across America. We, we looked at that very carefully in, 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 in our very first sermon on the series, uh, second great awakening across America. And during that same time, we have uh, uh, revivals are happening. Uh, we have the layman's revival, prayer revival shortly thereafter. Let me see how I position it. Yeah. During that, right after that, we have many notable missionaries going out. David Livingston to Africa. William Burns to China. Hudson Taylor again to China. George Muller in England itself serving the orphans. Mary Slessor, a missionary to Africa. So we, again, we see a revival. Many missionaries being released. We set another revival taking place during 1857 to 1858. That whole re time period, 1857 through 80, 1860, that period is a very important period because what we see in the history of that church is there was revival breaking out globally in many different regions of the globe. We see the revival, layman's prayer revival in New York. We see revival in Northern Ireland in 1859. Prayer revival in Wales, revival in Scotland, in South Africa, in Jamaica. Revival breaking out globally in many different parts of the world. What does that teach us? It teaches us this, that there are seasons in the life of the church when God releases revival, not just in one region, but he releases revival in many regions of the world. Because it has happened time and time again the history of the church. It means that you and I should be sensitive when we hear of revival breaking out in a certain part of the world. It should encourage us to say, God, we want it here also. Are you with me? Are you all still awake? Or you're going like, like, man, history class. I used to sleep. <laughs> but this is different history. This is exciting. All right. So, uh, right after that, so in, in 1859, 1860s, a very important part, season, in the history of the church. Revival all over the globe. And right after that, you see a number of missionaries. Names you'll recognize like C.D. Studd, Amy Carmichael who came to India, Ida Scudder who set up CMC uh, that's established even till to, uh, that goes on till today, uh, William Booth, uh, founder of Salvation Army, and so on. Now, at the end of that, towards the end of that 19th century, something important happens in the life of the church. We see... Just as we had the early reformers we, we, we mentioned, we see what we call as the healing forerunners, meaning now we are beginning to see offices being restored to the church, ministry offices. We had reformers who brought truth back into the church. But now we begin to see ministry gifts being restored because they comprise the structure of the church body. The, the church structure is comprised of evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, and apostles. Are you with me? That needed to be restored. And we see the beginnings of that towards the end of the 19th century. And so we have these men, some of them we've listed here, whom we call as the healing forerunners. The if people who could, we could clearly identify as saying these are healing evangelists. Men with that who are moving in that, and famous names like John Alexander Dovey, uh, who set up Zion City, uh, John G. Lake, and F.F. Bosworth. Uh, uh, Bosworth wrote the classic book, Christ the Healer, which even today is a classic if you want to learn about healing ministry, but he wrote it back in that day. Uh, John G. Lake, a great healing evangelist, he was, a, uh, he, he was a businessman in Chicago, he left his job, he moved to South Africa, and in a five-year period, more than 1,000 churches were raised up in South Africa. He was so powerful that God was using him so powerful in the healing ministry. When, plague, when a plague broke out in, in, in that area where he was living, he and his workers were untouched. They would go and rescue the people affected by the plague and it would not affect them. John G. Lake then went back to America. He set up a home uh, on the West Coast in uh, Spokane, in Spokane, who was, thank you. In Spokane, Washington, he set up his headquarters there. He had, a, he had a ministry called the Healing Rooms, where all they did was to pray for sick people. 
And they had such healings that about 100,000 documented healings every year. Now the small business bureau in America wanted to investigate them because they were supposedly practicing medicine without license. So he invited them. He said, you watch what we do for an entire week. And at the end of the week, I will gather all these people in an auditorium and I will give you 100 valid healings for you to test. And he, they did that. They spent an entire week in the healing rooms looking at John G. Lake and all the other people praying for the sick. They saw the people getting healed and then they brought them all into this auditorium, gave them this hundred thing and they said, we don't even want to look at it. We, you are clear. Such was the power of the healing ministry released through this man. God was restoring something to the church, which we, I believe today, we must recover. Redig some of those ancient wells and drink out of it. Amen? So we have this thing. And then in, in the beginning of the 20th century, I want to just briefly talk about, oh, only 10 more minutes. Charles Fox Perham, 1900. This was very important. In 1900, this is the year 1899. It's December 31st. Here's a man, Charles Fox Perham. He is so hungry for the Holy Spirit. You see, in those days, they didn't have the teaching and the revelation that if you wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, Somebody could teach you about it, lay hands on you and pray, and you could be filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues. They didn't have all of that. Charles Fox Pram was hungry. He was running a little Bible college. He had about 20-some students there. So he told all of them, read the book of Acts. Whatever you find in it, let's start praying for it. So they all read the book of Acts, and they were convinced that in addition to being saved and sanctified, they needed to have the, second, the separate experience of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So his entire you know, group of students were all praying. He was also praying, saying, God, we want this. Now, here's what, how, what, how interesting the way God answered. Midnight, 1899, switching over into the 1900. Midnight, December 31st. They had this young girl, she said, her name was Agnes. And she said, you know, uh, she came to Charles, uh, Charles Pram and said, can you just lay hands on me and pray that God will baptize me the Holy Spirit? And he himself had not experienced it. But see how God worked. He laid his hands on her, prayed for her, and right at midnight, she was baptized in the Holy Spirit. She started speaking in Chinese, and she spoke in Chinese for the next three days. She could not speak English. And that was clear evidence. She was baptized in the Holy Ghost. But that began the Pentecostal movement. And soon all the other students were baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Charles Perham was himself baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. They disbanded the Bible college in four months because they all wanted to go out and take this news. And, uh, but that began this mighty move of the Holy Spirit. Around that same time, revivals started breaking out in different parts of the world. And you have the list there in 1904, the Welsh Revival, uh, the revival in South Africa in 1905, John Hyde in Punjab, Sialkot in Punjab in India. 1905, the Mukti Mission. You've heard of these, some of these stories. But in 1906, an amazing revival broke out in Azusa Street, and I want to spend a few minutes on that. Charles Fox Perham, who had earlier run that little Bible, four-month Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, at the turn of the century, he was in Houston it, uh, the, in 1905. He was doing a similar Bible college there, and a man named William Seymour wanted to attend that short-term Bible college. Now, because of the segregation laws of that day, Seymour could not sit in the main class. So he had to sit outside and look through the window and listen to what Perham was teaching. So William Seymour was sitting outside, listening to the entire lectures. He believed everything that he was hearing about the Holy Spirit, except that he had not yet experienced it. Around that time, he received an invitation to take up pastorate of a small church in Los Angeles. So with, uh, with Charles Perham's permission, he quit his course, he, uh, he got some money, he traveled all the way to Los Angeles to take up the pastorate of this church. He was so excited about all the things he was learning about the Holy Spirit, so surely enough, his first sermon was on the Holy Spirit. He preached so excitedly about the Holy Spirit. When he came back that evening, he found the church padlocked, and, his, and, and he was, that's it, that was the end of his pastoral assignment. One sermon, he lost his pulpit. 
So a uh, very sad family, you know, a loving family took him. They saw this man, you know, he was left on the streets, no church to preach and nothing. They took him into their home. So he was living with his family there in Los Angeles. And he was crying out to God saying, God, I want this Holy Spirit. I want this anointing. What should I do? And those days he was praying five hours a day. And God responded to William Seymour and said, pray more. And so he increased his prayer to seven hours a day. He had nothing to do. He was without a job. So he was living in this home that, uh, of some kind people. And he was praying. One evening when he came for dinner along with his family. Suddenly. I hope it happens in all of our living rooms. <laughs> suddenly the Holy Spirit just moved upon them. This man in his, whose house he was staying was thrown off his chair on the floor. And he started praying in tongues. And everyone else around that table began to pray in tongues in the living room of this home in, in Los Angeles. And these people didn't, they said, wow, God is here. And so what did they do? They went out to a street corner, now known as Azusa Street. They rented, a run, they rented out a rundown barn. It was dirty and everything. And, and, and they began to hold meetings every day, prayer meetings. In there, and William Seymour was hardly a great preacher. He would just stand at the pulpit and he would just pray to God. People would come in and they would be baptized, and the Holy Spirit started praying in tongues. Sinners would start getting saved, and the Holy Spirit was moving so unusually in this place. So much so that in this began in 1906, in two years, how many years? Two years, and remember this is 1906. In two years, the fires of revival spread from Azusa Street to 50 nations around the world. In two years, through a man who was not allowed to be a pastor. 50 nations, that gave birth to the Pentecostal movement. In, that short, in a short six-year period subsequent to that, all across America, more than 3,000 cities, they were experiencing the fire of the Holy Spirit. Churches were raised up, Pentecostal churches, where people were baptized, Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, all started in the street corner in Azusa Street through one, and he was a one-eyed preacher, through one man who was just crying out for the Holy Spirit. That changed the course of Christian history because that gave birth to what we call today as the Pentecostal movement and subsequently came the charismatic movement out of that. And today, everywhere, all around the world, you have Christians praying in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the recent uh, two weeks ago, The Economist carried several pages on the charismatic movement. This is the fastest growing. About 34% of the Christians today are charismatic. Fastest growing move within the Christian church began there. One man prays. Amen. Subsequent to that, we see revivals happening all over the world. And we don't have time to go through all of that. Uh, revivals uh, in China, in Korea, uh, and so on. And one of the amazing things that we see as a result of this revival, we see missions happening. New kinds of missions breaking out all along the world. We have uh, uh, people get into aviation and so on. And then we see massive church growth. 1958, Yonggi Cho started his church in Korea. Today, they're close to, I don't know, close to a million people, members in one church. The second largest church is in Bogota, Colombia. Our pastor says a Castellanos, and I think in 1985 or something, he started that church. Now they're close to 300,000 people. The third largest church is in Hyderabad, Calvary Temple, Pastor Tadish Kumar. He started the church in 2005. Today, about 130,000 people are worshiping there. But, there are massive churches of 50,000 people, many churches of 50,000 and more, almost in every continent, many churches of 5,000 and more everywhere. The key thing I want to bring to our attention is this, that Reformation gives birth to revival, which brings about restoration of the church. What we see happen is that from 19, in, the early, in the early part of the 20th, 20th century, there was restoration of the church taking place. In the 1960s, the office of the evangelist was restored to the church. You would hear of men like Billy Graham and, and great evangelists rising up, holding big campaigns, and you'd say, he is an evangelist. In the 1970s, the office of the pastor teacher was restored to the church. People started teaching the word of God. 
And so new kinds of churches were being established which could not be accommodated in the old form of institutionalized church. So new wineskin was required to contain the new wine that God was pouring. So in the 1970s, new kinds of churches were being established all around the world. They were word-based, spirit-filled churches that came out of the mainline Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist, Pres um, uh, Lutheran type of churches. In the 1980s, the office of the prophet was restored to the church. You would, you would know people who were prophetic and who were prophets all over the world. In the 1990s, the office of the apostle was restored to the church. God began to raise up men and women who were apostles in the body of Christ. And so these people, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, the prophets, the, um, the, prophets, the apostles, began to equip the church. And then we began to see the saints being released in the work of the ministry. So what is the current work of God in the church? It is to equip every believer to do the work of the ministry. That's where the church is today. And only those kinds of churches that permit that will survive. Because you need a certain kind of wineskin to contain the new wine. The new wine God's releasing now is that the saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry. That's where we are. And the next great thing that we are seeing ahead of us is that we will all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There's going to be a great worldwide movement of unity, of togetherness in the body of Christ like never before, of kingdom-mindedness, because that's what in Ephesians 4, that we come together in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are you all with me? Did I lose you somewhere? So the restoration of the church. The church is being restored in, in, in truth, in, in its structure, in the new wine, in the purpose of God's people, and its impact on the world. We are going to have a powerful impact on the world as we come to the unity of the faith. You know why? Because Jesus said, I pray that they may be one, even as I am one, that the world may know. The moment the church begins to flow together in unity, the world is going to know. Who Jesus is. When I say unity, I'm not saying we all come under the same building. That's not practically possible. But I'm saying we are learning to work together. We are no longer intimidated by each other, but we are joining hands and hearts and saying we're all one in the body. Doesn't matter what label you put on yourself. Anyway, they'll all be stripped out when you're taken up in heaven. So, let's work together. That's where we are. And the world will know. The world will see the glory of God in the church. If God could bring us out of that darkness to where we are today, I believe he can take us the rest of the way. Amen. To conclude, three important lessons we can learn from the history of the church. Number one, reformation gives rise to revival, which brings about restoration in the church, which causes missions and church growth. So in order to see revival, what must we have? Reformation. That means coming back to the truth. Secondly, we see that there are Global seasons of revival, meaning when, when God is releasing revival, we've seen patterns in the history of the church when it happens globally. Many regions of the world are affected, which, uh, uh, which places upon us the importance of watching out to see what God is doing. If revival is happening, there's something happening somewhere, we need to say, God, we want that here. Amen? The third thing is this, and I didn't, I didn't emphasize this enough, but stories of revival often ignite revival. Jonathan Edwards, the man God used in the first great awakening, he believed that. He would just talk about stories of revival, what God was doing, and it would ignite revival wherever he went. And that's why it's important for us to talk about stories of revival. When you get this book that will be in print in a few weeks, read the stories of revival. Don't put it under your, in your bookshelf. Please. <laughs> read it. Read those stories of those revivals in the history of the church because they will ignite your heart and mind for revival. But where does revival begin? It begins with reformation. And all revival begins with you and me as individuals. Revival begins with the reformation of our lives, of our hearts. Amen? Our lives, our hearts should come aligned with the truth of God. Revival will begin. That's what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come as we talk about how are we going to pursue revival for us in our day? How are we going to prepare for revival? How are we going to pray for revival? And how are we going to steward revival? 2006 
Shillong experienced a great revival. Four years prior to that, the Presbyterian Church in Shillong was praying intensely. They prayed for four long years for revival to commemorate the outpouring that they had seen from 1906, subsequent to the Welsh revival. So they prayed really hard, and sure enough, in 2006, the Presbyterian Church there in Shillong experienced a great revival. But all of it waned in about a year's time. They prayed for revival, but they did not prepare for revival. They did not prepare to steward what God was releasing in their midst. So when it came, they didn't know how to handle it. It just happened. They didn't know how to steward it and sustain it and help them go to a new level. Today, everything has been lost. And we should not be people like that. As we start praying for revival, we must first of all prepare for revival. Learn how to steward revival in our lives. That's what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. Amen? Let's rise to your feet, please. Call our worship team up here. I know we're already past time, but I just request you to please bear with us for a few minutes. Would you pray a simple prayer with me saying, God, if you've done it in the past, I know you can do it again. Do it here, God. Do it here. Send revival. In my life personally, in our church, send revival. Let's take a few minutes to pray for that, and then we will close this morning. If you need prayer, we will be waiting here. We will pray with you personally after the service. If you feel in your heart that you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, we will be here this, right after the service. You can come and meet with me, and I'll pray with you to give your life to Christ. If you feel that you need prayer to get out of any bondage or sin, or whatever your need is, you have a need in your life, a financial need, a a situation near home, or anything that you want to pray, you're welcome to come right after service. We'll be here to pray. But let's just ask the Lord, Lord, do it again here. You've done it in the past. Do it in my life. Do it in my church. Let's take a few moments to make that prayer as the worship team leads us, please. Lord, our faith 
together and God needs us believe for a great awakening for a great revival God send your fire upon us and God ignite each one of us personally God ignite each one of us set a fire in our hearts oh God a fire of passion for you a fire of passion for your word a fire of passion for your presence ignite our hearts today we pray that revival will begin inside each of us, in our hearts. God, we pray you will visit us personally, visit us as a church, visit our city, visit our nation, we pray. God, if you've done it in the past and you've done it so many times, we look to you, God, to do it again. And again and again in Jesus name amen 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 let's close the grace of our Lord Jesus the amazing love of God our Father and the sweet transforming presence of his Holy Spirit be with each one of us Always, always, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you again. Enjoy revival. God bless. Have a good afternoon. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.